The Senate was considering a bill to expand or impose universal background checks on gun purchases in America. This was in the wake of the Sandy Hook massacre. It was a bipartisan bill. It was sponsored by Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Senator Pat Toomey, a Republican of Pennsylvania. It had near universal support in terms of public opinion. That's Adam Gentleson, author of the recent book, Kill Switch. He's advocating for repeal of the Senate filibuster. That's the procedural tool by which any U.S. senator can delay voting on a bill. But in doing so, they also increase the number of votes needed for passage from 51 to a much more difficult-to-reach 60-vote level. This was a very centrist, moderate policy. Many would argue something that didn't even go far enough to address the massacre of 20 first-graders with an assault rifle in their classroom. And it failed in the Senate on a filibuster, but not the kind of filibuster that people think of when they think of the filibuster. There was no Jimmy Stewart moment. There was no great speech on the Senate floor. The bill's opponents simply were able to use the modern version of the filibuster to silently raise the threshold for passing this bill. Today on The Purple Principle, the Senate filibuster, weapon of obstruction or shield against polarization. We have two equally well-informed guests on this episode with very different takes on this issue. I'm Robert Pease. And I'm Emily Corsetti. And when Adam Gentleson refers to the Jimmy Stewart moment, he's talking about the 1939 movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. In this classic film by Frank Capra, a naive but determined freshman Senator Smith, played by Jimmy Stewart, engages in a good old-fashioned talking filibuster. And in typical Hollywood style, he's single-handedly taking on the corrupt leadership of the U.S. Senate. I had some pretty good coaching last night, and I find that if I yield only for a question or a point of order or a personal privilege, that I can hold this floor almost until doomsday. In other words, I've got a piece to speak. And blow hot or cold, I'm going to speak it. And speak it he does. In fact, he's still speaking while nearing exhaustion 25 hours later. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause, even if this room gets filled with lies like these. But this being La La Land, Mr. Smith turns the tide even while passed out when the corrupt Senate leader confesses his crime. Every word of that boy said is the truth. Every word about Taylor and me and Graft and the rough political corruption of my state. Every word of it is true. It's oh, me. And hooray for Hollywood endings. But in the reality of our nation's capital, Senate filibusters rarely turn the tide or even change a single vote they most commonly obstruct legislation. Still, our other featured guest today is opposed to repealing the filibuster. He's Richard Ehrenberg, a 30-year veteran of the Senate as a senior staffer to Senators George Mitchell, Paul Songus, and Carl Levin. Richard Ehrenberg co-authored a 2012 book entitled Defending the Filibuster and calls for a return to the Jimmy Stewart-style talking filibuster while warning against the dangers of complete repeal. You know, my view of it is that it's a very short-sighted position to take to eliminate the filibuster to get the things done that you want done on your agenda. Because if there's one thing we know about the United States Senate is it won't be in the control 
of one party or the other for all that long. And that the day of reckoning will come. This filibuster debate is more than hot air about hot air. It's a debate about the demise of the center of American politics and the inability to achieve bipartisan compromise. Join us today as we learn not just about the filibuster, but the changing culture of the U.S. Senate. We should explain that both of our guests today, Adam Gentleson and Richard Ehrenberg, are Democrats because that is the more interesting side of the current debate. And it isn't surprising that the minority party, which is just barely the Republicans in today's 50-50 Senate, want to retain the strength of the filibuster against majority-backed legislation. But we'll check the bipartisan credentials of our two Democratic guests today by asking them to show a bit of purple, meaning a bit of respect for some legislator from across the aisle. First, though, let's hear from Adam Gentleson on this. He's the former deputy chief of staff to Majority Leader Harry Reid. We asked him to explain to our independent-minded listeners why he's in favor of repealing the almost 200-year-old filibuster, the Senate's long-standing protection against majority domination. I think that anybody who favors a functioning federal government should be in favor of filibuster reform. And I'm obviously on the left side of the spectrum. I don't make any attempt to hide that. But I think that what we're talking about here is a tactic that defeats not far-left policies, but middle-of-the-road policies. It is a tactic that simply grinds the gears of our government to a halt and makes it completely unable to pass even policies that have the support of 90% of the country. A big part of our show, kind of our mantra, is that polarization underlies all the problems uh, of our politics. So how would removing the filibuster then affect polarization specifically? The reason that getting rid of the filibuster will, I think, help maybe us take baby steps as a nation to get out of this polarization is that it's very easy to see President Biden picking up small numbers of Republicans on some of the major priorities that he wants to pass, such as the infrastructure bill that he's going to bring up. It's very hard to see him picking up 10 Republicans and getting to this arbitrary 60-vote threshold. And as a committed Democrat, which you've mentioned you are, do you ever fear that without the filibuster, policies of a Republican government might be easier to pass? Well, I don't fear it. I mean, I would not like to see those things passed, but I think, you know, from a philosophical perspective, I think that, you know, our system should allow whoever's in power to pass the things that they ran on if they can get a majority support for them. But I would say the filibuster kind of provides this fig leaf to the Republican Party in a lot of ways, where they advocate strongly for policies that are pretty unpopular with the general public, but are very popular with their base. And you mentioned a bit about how filibusters were used to obstruct policies of the Obama administration. Just for balance, can you think of any examples of how Democrats used the filibuster to try to obstruct Trump administration goals? Certainly, when I was in the Senate, um, this was before Trump came into power. So for 2015 and 2016, we were in the minority, and we certainly filibustered a number of things that McConnell wanted to pass. They would have been vetoed by President Obama anyway, but we certainly deployed the tactic. And then under Trump, Democrats did use the filibuster periodically. There were some immigration deals that probably would have passed if Democrats had not been able to filibuster them, money for Trump's border wall and things like that. 
there was a 20-week abortion ban bill that came up for a vote in 2017 that passed the House and did get 51 votes in the Senate. But structurally, it is a tactic that advantages conservatives more than liberals. It has been used, uh, a study um, published in 2018 found that the filibuster had been used twice as often by Republicans to block Democratic bills than by Democrats to block Republican bills. We ask every guest to show a bit of purple. And since you've already said you're a committed Democrat, could you tell us about one major Republican figure that you admire? I have a lot of admiration for Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. I think she's an incredibly powerful, independent thinker. And I think in a Senate where the filibuster was reformed, she's someone who would wield a lot more power because she'd be one of the kingmakers for helping bills get across that majority threshold instead of sort of just being, you know, one face in the crowd on your way to this impossible threshold of 60. So can you tell us about your time as Senate Deputy Chief of Staff and where you were trying to or were able to work across the aisle? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I come back to the background checks bill because that was, you know, certainly a bipartisan bill. It's unfortunate that it got blocked, but I still see that bill itself as an achievement. That was 2013. Later that year, we passed a um, bipartisan immigration reform bill through the Senate. And unfortunately, it died in the House of Representatives. And that was true for a lot of the legislation that we passed during that time. I was also there for the end of, for the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell in 2010. And that was a bill that was put together by Susan Collins of Maine, a Republican, and Joe Lieberman of Connecticut, who at the time was an independent. But what was unfortunate is that a lot of that stuff just stopped happening after 2013 and 2014, and things started grinding to a halt. There's certainly lots of grinding noises in Congress, but has it come to a halt? The Senate did pass the COVID relief bill through a budget maneuver called reconciliation which works around the filibuster. And similar tactics are being considered for a big infrastructure bill. But centrist Democratic Senator Joe Manchin has recently come out against reforming the filibuster and against using budget reconciliation as a way around it. He's looking for more bipartisan solutions. Let me say this. I'm not willing to go into reconciliation until we at least give bipartisanship or get working together or allow the Senate to do its job. Can you imagine not having to sit down or there's no reason for you to sit down with your colleagues on both sides and have their input? The Senate is the most unique body of government in the world. Yet only a short time ago, he seemed in favor of some minor reforms. Senator Manchin, however, is not the first senator to flip-flop on the question of the filibuster. An eight-hour filibuster-style speech by Ted Cruz in 2013 was filled with many surprises, including... A bedtime story for his daughters. Do you like green eggs and ham? I do not like them, Sam I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. Would you like them here or there? I would not like them here or there. I would not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam I am. Then, just two short years later, Cruz changes his mind. So, long and short, I agree. I would end 60 vote filibuster right now. Oh, the places partisan politicians will go. That's an amateur recording of Ted Cruz at a 2015 Texas Tea Party event. Hard to hear clearly, but he's saying he would end the 60 vote filibuster right then before the Democrats can do it first. Why have I changed my mind? I think the next time the Democrats have a majority, particularly the Democratic president, I think they'll end the filibuster. 
And in that same Dr. Seuss, redfish, bluefish spirit, Senator Chuck Schumer advocated for protecting the filibuster in 2017 when Democrats were in the minority. Find a way to build a firewall around the legislative filibuster. Without the 60-vote threshold for legislation, the Senate becomes a majoritarian institution like the House. No senator would like to see this happen. So let's find a way to further protect the 60-vote rule for legislation. But just recently, in 2021, Majority Leader Schumer has seemingly come out for filibuster reform. There's a big difference in how we're conducting things and the way they're conducting things. And we're going to put these bills on the floor. We're going to see votes on it. We need big, bold action. Everything's on the table. Notice a pattern here? Senators from both parties are in favor of reform when in the majority, but against repeal when in the minority, which may explain why we've been dealing with the filibuster issue off and on for not just the past few decades, but nearly 200 years. Our next guest, Richard Ehrenberg, would argue that's kind of how the founders intended things. Maybe not the filibuster per se, which came into being decades after the first Congress, but the principles of minority rights and the goal of consensus. It's there in the fact that even the smallest states do have two senators. And it's there again in the two-third majority needed to override the presidential veto. Let's hear from one of the most informed voices on the history of the Senate, Richard Ehrenberg, a longtime Senate staffer, co-author of Defending the Filibuster, and now a visiting professor at Brown University. We start by asking him if he felt hyperpartisanship creeping into the U.S. Senate during his three decades as a Senate staffer. Oh, yes, no question. I mean, from the time when I first got to Capitol Hill in the late 1970s until I retired from the the, uh, Senate staff in uh, the beginning of 2009, there was very definitely a change virtually year over year. You know, a couple of decades ago, if you looked at that milling around on the floor, it would have been totally mixed in terms of party label. You know, it's so polarized today that you could draw a line down the middle of your screen and all of the Republicans will be to your left, ironically, and all of the Democrats will be to your right. And it's something that concerns me very deeply. Nonetheless, it's still not as marked It's not as deeply true of the uh, Senate as it is of the House. So what I'm really getting to is if you think that excessive partisan polarization is the disease, eliminating the filibuster is going to exacerbate, not solve that problem. You mentioned in your book that historically most senators did not come up to the Senate through the House, but then the Gingrich, as in the Newt Gingrich senators, came up from the House to the Senate. We just did an episode about former Speaker of the House Gingrich and his role in elevating partisanship. So tell us how that changed the way things worked. Well, I think they were a part of the change. I mean, I think we've seen the development of greater and greater partisan polarization, but I think that's contributed to by the election of many more House members to the Senate because they, you know, they've cut their teeth in a majoritarian body 
and because it's a much more partisan and polarized environment in the House. Let's talk now about your 2012 book, which you co-authored, Defending the Filibuster. And you wrote at that time, the filibuster has been abused, but reform efforts can be dangerous, and a balance needs to be maintained between consensus and protecting the minority. Is that your still your view today, about a decade later? Sure. Yes, it is. Of course, the abuse, if anything, has worsened. But nonetheless, I still believe that the filibuster plays a very important role in making the Senate the body that it is, and that that's a positive role. But because of the abuse of that tool, there are certain reforms that I support. Well, let's talk then about your recent Wall Street Journal piece with former Senator Carl Levin. If we're understanding that correctly, it seems to be supportive of perhaps a return to the talking filibuster where people have to really go on record and show why they're opposed to something. Is that your position now? Basically, yes. I mean, I think that, you know, the talking filibuster is often characterized as a reform step that might be taken. The leadership under the existing Senate rules can cause that to happen. And as we argued in that Wall Street Journal piece, I think it should happen in the current circumstance. And the you know, one of the reasons that I'm for that is because I think that when the Senate is engaged in that kind of battle, that energizes the media. And so if you have a circumstance, as I think progressives currently believe they have, where they have agenda items which are broadly popular on a bipartisan basis in the electorate, creating the media attention and so forth, ought to put great pressure on those who are simply obstructing a popular proposal. Well, you mentioned progressives at this moment seem very much in favor of repealing or revoking the filibuster. And uh, we had another interview with Adam Gentleson, who's written this book, Kill Switch, lays out a very persuasive, you know, historical case. Sure. But you, it's a good book. But you also have a phrase in your book about the dangers of stealing the keys to the bulldozer, I think you put it. So what would you say to progressives about how much damage the bulldozer can do when keys change hands? Oh, yeah. I think it's, you know, my view of it is that it's a very short-sighted position to take to eliminate the filibuster to get the things done that you want done on your agenda. One thing that people don't think about when they think about the elimination of the filibuster is that it will put the majority party in complete control of the federal budget. But it seems there's an assumption behind maintaining the filibuster that there will be senators who have the courage to cross the aisles and vote with the other side, which is a scary proposition. As soon as you do that, there's a primary election target on your back. Well, I definitely think there's a problem there. There are a whole lot of procedures that have been overused, abused, and stretched out of shape. We see that happening with reconciliation, for example, in the budget process. 
when I first got to the Senate, senators understood the need for restraint. The filibuster was more rarely used because they understood that if it were overused, you know, it could be eliminated. The fact that you were willing to filibuster something was a demonstration that it was you know, profoundly important, either because it was such a big issue or because it was so unique to your home state. And we've seen those kind of filibusters over the years as well, where it was one or two senators, you know, sort of uh, Jimmy Stewart fashion. I've got a few things I want to say to this body. I tried to say them once before and I got stopped colder in a mackerel. Well, I'd like to get them said this time, sir. And as a matter of fact, I'm not going to leave this body until I do get them said. President, will the senator yield? The senator yield? No, sir, I'm afraid not. Despite the fact that Jimmy Stewart filibusters are no longer necessary and any senator can silently hold up a bill, we have still seen talking filibusters in recent decades. Bernie Sanders spoke at great length against the extension of Bush-era tax cuts in 2010 while the economy was in deep recession. You can call what I'm doing today whatever you want. You can call it a filibuster. You can call it a very long speech. Record-breaking $13.8 trillion national debt. Enough is enough that it is absurd. So, Mr. President, I am here to take a stand. And Senator Rand Paul conducted a 13-hour filibuster of John Brennan's nomination to CIA director in 2013. The cause here is, is one that I think is important enough to have gone through this procedure. <clears throat> I, I sit at Henry Clay's desk, and they call Henry Clay the great compromise. You know, people think that some of us won't compromise. There are many compromises. There are many things I'm willing to split the difference on. But the issue we've had today, I think, is one that we don't split the difference on. For another 12 hours to try to break Strom Thurmond's record, but I've discovered that there are some limits to filibustering, and I'm going to have to go take care of one of those in a few minutes here. (laughs) Historically, though, the filibuster was not primarily used by just one or two senators looking to make a media splash. It was more a tool of obstruction used by a block of senators, most commonly Southern senators, on the issues of slavery and then civil rights. And this arose from an accident going way back to the time of a senator named Alexander Hamilton and a vice president named Aaron Burr. Should we make that joke now that someone should write a play about those two? That's really begging for editing. So let's just move directly on to Adam Gentleson on the accidental birth of the Senate filibuster over two centuries ago. Seriously, Emily, I'm, I'm hearing a musical. Do you hear that? I sometimes call it the, the most consequential copy edit in American history. Aaron Burr in 1806 was presiding over actually the third impeachment trial in American history. And this was after he'd shot Hamilton. So it was sort of a weird period in, in history. And everybody knew that when he left the Senate, he would probably not be coming back because he had this indictment looming. And then he makes a series of recommendations for how the Senate can, this young institution can sort of clean up its rules and make itself more well-managed. And because obstruction was relatively unknown in this early Senate, one of the rules they got rid of was this rule to end debate by a majority vote. And it wasn't until John Calhoun arrives in the Senate in the 1830s that he realizes that the lack of any rule 
that would allow the Senate to end debate means that he could talk for as long as he wanted. And Calhoun had an issue he was trying to prevent legislation around. So please tell us about his background and how successful he was in preventing action on slavery. He was a real chameleon politically. He actually started his career as a strong federalist and advocate of a strong national government. Of course, we know him as the father of nullification and sort of the spiritual grandfather of the Confederacy. And this was a period where you had many issues that were not ostensibly about slavery, but were really about slavery because they were fundamentally about the balance of power between the North and the South. And so one of the first filibusters that Calhoun wages is against an 1841 bill to establish a second bank of the United States. This was Calhoun sort of bringing into existence what we would consider sort of identified as a talking filibuster, the Jimmy Stewart style, standing on the floor, giving this extended defense and doing it in the name of minority rights. But of course, the minority that he was talking about was not a vulnerable population in need of protection. It was the planter class of the South. And there's another important figure that perhaps not a lot of Americans know about, and that is Richard or Dick Russell. Yeah, so this is in the Jim Crow era. Richard Russell comes to the Senate in the 1930s, and he quickly establishes himself as the de facto leader of the Senate. He controlled the Southern Bloc, which was the most powerful bloc in the Senate of about 20 senators. He knew the Senate rules like nobody else. And he dedicated himself to innovating and wielding the filibuster exclusively against civil rights bills. And this is when the filibuster went from the talking filibuster that we know, or started as transformation from the talking filibuster, to the ability to impose a threshold of a supermajority on bills. And that was the work of Richard Russell and the Southern Bloc. And they did it explicitly in the name of white supremacy. And then finally, that long saga of civil rights obstruction, that's finally broken after 80-something years or so of inaction. And there's an unlikely alliance in that. So tell us about how that particular 1964 filibuster is finally broken. Yes. So this is a a fascinating episode. I'm actually going to back it up to 1957 because another chameleon in this act was Richard Nixon. You know, I think it's lost to history that the Republican Party of the 1950s was actually very aggressively pursuing civil rights. Richard Nixon, who was the vice president at the time, is Eisenhower's point man on this outreach on civil rights. And he joins up with leading Senate liberals in order to pass Eisenhower's strong civil rights bill. They are blocked in this effort by Lyndon Johnson, who at the time was a close ally of the white supremacist Southern Bloc. So, you know, obviously in 1960, Kennedy and Johnson defeat Richard Nixon. Nixon disappears from the scene, humiliated and with nothing to show for his work on civil rights, and then comes back to the scene in 1968 as Mr. White Backlash with his Southern strategy. In the meantime, Johnson becomes president, obviously, after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And then Johnson proceeds to turn on Richard Russell, who was his mentor, to break Russell's two-month-long filibuster against the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Congress passes the most sweeping civil rights bill ever to be written into the law, and thus reaffirms the conception of equality for all men that began with Lincoln and the Civil War 100 years ago. President Johnson calls for all Americans to back what he calls a turning point in history. I urge every American to join in this effort to bring justice and hope to all our people and to bring peace to our land. And 
During that two months, Johnson had the full cooperation, not just of the Democratic Senate leader, Mike Mansfield, but also the Republican Senate leader, Everett Dirksen. And I think you look at politics today, and it's pretty hard to imagine President Biden ever having the cooperation, not just of Chuck Schumer, but also Mitch McConnell to break a filibuster. So it was a monumental effort. Should it take monumental efforts to pass legislation supported by the vast majority of Americans? That appears to be the current situation with regard to immigration, environment, gun safety, and many other issues. But the veteran Senate staffer Richard Ehrenberg also delves into much of that same history in his book, and yet still comes out warning against removing the filibuster completely. Or, in his words, losing the keys to the bulldozer. And that's because, in his view, the Senate is the last and perhaps only hope for any bipartisanship in our political culture and process. So we asked him to show a bit of purple, the color of compromise, and tell us about some of the Republicans that he had worked with during his three decades as a senior Democratic staffer. Well, there are a lot of them, but, you know, one of the easiest ones to pick and bring to mind is John McCain, who I had a fair amount of interaction over the years with and, you know, always found him somebody that was very principled. But, you know, when I first got to the Senate, somebody that I also respected, somebody like Barry Goldwater, who before I got to Washington, I'd always thought of him as slightly crazed, you know, but, you know, certainly probably the most conservative member of the Senate at the time that I got there. And he frequently worked across the aisle with Democrats. Or to, you know, to point to an example on the other side, Ted Kennedy, who had made a whole career of working out a lot of bipartisan solutions. So what we really want is for the parties to be willing to come to the table. And in 2005, that even happened on the filibuster, by the way. You know, we had the gang of 14, seven Democrats and seven Republicans, and they came together to save the filibuster in 2005. Yeah, and more recently, there appeared to be some bipartisanship in reviving talks on COVID relief, I believe involving Senators Manchin, Collins, Murkowski. Yeah. Well, yeah, they've been calling themselves the G20, I think, or, you know, they're a gang of 20. And, you know, the math kind of works. And uh, there's some hope in that. I mean, I'm a bit of a Pollyanna. And I think just getting people to act civilly towards each other, to sit down at the table and negotiate solutions, that can go a long way. So the question of where you stand on filibuster repeal or reform really hinges on whether you think real bipartisanship is still possible in the U.S. Senate. It's certainly become more difficult over the past few decades. As you, Emily, and reporter Michael Valeri documented in our season one episode with Unite America founder Charles Whelan. First, the gradual demise of the Northeast moderate Republicans who were not so fondly labeled rhinos, as in Republicans in name only. How many moderate New England Republicans held Senate seats when Charlie Whelan says the rhino hunt began in the late 1980s? 
Looks like about five, including Lowell Weicker of Watergate fame in Connecticut who lost re-election that year. And Jim Jeffords from Vermont who wins election but becomes an independent in 2001. So by 2000, we are down to three. Judd Gregg of New Hampshire also retires in 2010. As does Olympia Snow of Maine in 2012, citing hyperpartisanship in the Senate as the reason. Today then, just one rhino left. Susan Collins from Maine, so nearing extinction. And in that same episode, you reported on the demise of the centrist Democratic senators from the South. They were not so fondly called dinos, or Democrats in name only. We looked at six northeastern states on our rhino hunt. Now let's compare that to six southeastern states. Okay, 12 Senate seats from those six states. Looks like seven are held by centrist Democrats in 1990, but by 2010, only two. So what happened? Complicated. Lots of things. The South shifts a little bit to the right each election. And when popular dinos like Sam Nunn or Fritz Hollins retire, their seats swing, like really swing, from conservative Democrat to conservative Republican, opening that gap in the middle. And rhino dino extinction destroying the center. Like a completely different Senate. In just three decades. And that demise of rhinos and dinos, or the moderate Republicans and conservative Democrats over the past three decades, that really underlies why Adam Gentleson has a much more pessimistic view on the chances for bipartisanship in today's Senate. So we asked him how repealing the filibuster would affect hyperpartisanship and polarization, and whether it might trigger a cycle of passing and repealing of the same legislation as the parties move in and out of the majority. I just would note, we are the only developed democracy that has a supermajority requirement for all legislation in our legislature. Every other democracy does not have this. They are majority rule. And they don't see the kind of, of whiplash where one party passes something and then the other side comes back in and undoes it all. I also think that history shows that that's unlikely to happen. One example I point to is Medicare. We look at that as a great bipartisan accomplishment, but it was actually fought tooth and nail at the time until it could secure a majority. Once it was able to secure a majority vote, it was it never faced a filibuster and it was never forced to clear a supermajority. Once policies are in place and people decide they like them, they're very hard to undo, even if your entire you know campaign was about undoing this policy. Every once in a while, we do see some hints of bipartisanship. And I thought one of them was when Susan Collins somewhat unexpectedly won re-election Joe Manchin was one of the first to congratulate her and say that he's looking forward to working with her on reviving the COVID relief negotiations. Would eliminating the filibuster just further minimize whatever vestige of bipartisanship we have left? I don't think so. I think that stagnation kills bipartisanship. I genuinely believe that getting the gears of government turning again is what's going to reestablish those bipartisan relationships. The key point to me is that right now, the party that's out of power has a heavy incentive to block the party that's in power from doing anything, especially in a narrowly divided Senate. They look at the next election and say, we only need a couple seats to get back in power. So let's block everything the other side is going to do. And so many important bills have been blocked in recent time in the U.S. Senate on immigration, on gun violence, the environment, and other chronic problems. Make up your own independent mind on this tricky issue of the filibuster, whether to reform it or repeal it, or leave it as is and hope for some crossing of the aisles in our closely divided Senate. Will the bipartisan group of 20 senators mentioned by Richard Ehrenberg transcend the partisan divide? Or will the Biden administration and Senate Democrats continue to work around the Senate filibuster to pass legislation through reconciliation? 
This was recently given the green light by the nonpartisan Senate parliamentarian, who is essentially the Senate referee. We'll keep you posted on those developments in future episodes and through our newsletter, The Purple Principle in Print, which is available at our website, purpleprinciple.com. But next time, we'll look at Washington gridlock from a slightly different viewpoint. The idea that our democracy has become a classic duopoly with high barriers to competition and really low responsiveness to its consumers, regular citizens like you and I. Our guests will be Catherine Gale, the founder of the Nonpartisan Institute for Political Reform, as well as co-author with renowned strategist Michael Porter of the book, The Politics Industry. Oh my goodness, that is how it is in the politics industry. There's high barriers to entry. Oh, the customers have very little power. Oh, look at how much power the suppliers have. And it was only later when I wanted to bring other business people into this effort on political innovation that I determined it would be helpful to write it up, to show this logic of the politics industry, because it not only explains what's gone wrong, it's a really good basis for understanding what we can most powerfully do to alter the dynamic. Join us then, share us on social media, review us on Apple Podcasts, and contact us through our website, Audio Recorder, with any feedback or ideas you have for the show. This has been Robert Pease and Emily Crissetti for the Purple Principle team, Allison Byrne, producer, Kevin A. Klein, senior audio engineer, Emily Holloway, research and outreach, Dom Scarlett, research associate. Original music composed and created by Ryan Adair Rooney. The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge production.